Amen. Thank you, Jerry. The psalmist writes, I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Indeed, we can trust the Lord in every situation. Thank you for that. We are having some technical difficulties with our video, so we're going to adjust a little bit and have an old-fashioned hymn sing this morning. How's that sound to you? All right. Be sure to fill out your connection card and drop it in the offering plate as you're leaving this morning. And we do have some some uh, passes for the a traditional bluegrass gospel music concert that will be at the Mesquite Arts Center. And if you're interested, we have some in the back. Please pick one up as you're leaving today. Good to see everyone this morning. And I'm going to ask Doug to... Oh, one more announcement. The nominating committee. Uh, we're going to be meeting right after the morning worship service. And we're going to meet in the uh, DFC, in the large room. The uh, nominating committee. So don't forget that today. I'm going to ask Doug to come and open us up in a word of prayer. I have one uh, more announcement before the uh, invocation. I was just advised that uh, um, our Easter offering, uh, everyone was really generous, and it's worth noting that we will be donating over $5,200 to our recipient. We only had one recipient this year because of the need. That was the Ukraine Theological Baptist Seminary, and they're the folks that are helping uh, Ukrainian refugees uh, that are going across the border and with hot meals, hot showers, uh, medical, educational needs, all those basic needs that we take for granted. So again, uh, we will be donating over $5,200 to, to that very worthy ministry. So I just wanted to let everybody know about that. Um, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as a creator of heaven and earth, you are the source of all that is good. You are the source of all of our blessings. Your divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of, of you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Your mercy, wisdom, and faithfulness have no limits. Though sin separates us from your holiness, your love is steadfast and true. And you showed your abounding love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This morning, we gather here with glad hearts to praise and worship you in song, the reading of your word, prayer, taking Holy Communion, participating in offering, and fellowship. And we ask for your blessing on all that we do, and we pray that what we do is pleasing to you. As we prepare, prepare for today's service, help us focus our hearts and minds on you so that we can rightly honor you. Be with us now as we gather in your name, and we invite the Holy Spirit to move freely amongst us and to come and dwell in each of our hearts. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody, find a hymnal. Uh, turn to page 56, To God Be the Glory. We'll sing all three verses. Please stand.
chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. This morning as we go to the Lord in our prayers, uh, we want to continue to pray for William Marlowe. He is doing very well. He is uh, still at Medical City and may get to come home another day or two. Uh, Rudy Martinez is in Baylor Rehab. And then Joan Williams' uh, husband Richard is on hospice at home. Those living in our senior living facilities are Flo Smith, Winona Anderson, Lorraine Bellringer, and Tony Myrick, and our homebound members are Dudley Perry, Cindy Bellmeyer, and Bill Guzzi. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you today. You are compassionate, you're gracious, and you're abounding in love. And we're humbled by the salvation that you freely give to us. We know that Christ has done all the work that is necessary to save us. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, are more than enough to pay for our sins. 
Father, our finite minds cannot really fathom the infinite riches of your grace. It is a grace that is greater than all our sins. Today, Father, we do want to lift up those who need your healing touch because we know that it can be very discouraging, very difficult to go through a real health problem. So, Father, we pray that you lift them up emotionally and spiritually and physically. Today, we pray for all the men and women who serve in our military. We pray especially for Omar Silva, Sean Carnes, Colin Graves, Abner Mauricio, Tyler McCarty Cogis, Joshua Davis, Nathan Hayes, Colby Hayes, Devin Guzman, Matilda Pritchett, and Jason Maxey. Father, we're thankful for their commitment and service to our country. We pray for the men and women who serve as first responders. We pray for our police officers and firefighters and others who are on the front line every day making our community safer. Father, we pray for our teachers and students in these last couple weeks of school. We pray for their safety, and we pray, Father, for a good end of the year. We pray for our nation, and these are difficult times. And I pray that you'll help restore civility and kindness and give wisdom to our leaders in making the hard choices. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Provide for their needs and protect them from the dangers of this senseless war. Father, we pray that you'll help us. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And we ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's join in singing our hymn of communion. Page 348, My Savior's Love, stanzas 1, 4, and 5. Oh, 
Scripture is 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 25. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, we come into your presence and we lift our prayer to you. You are our refuge, our cornerstone. And Father, as we stand before you, we bow our heads and we confess our sins. And we ask that you cleanse and purify us. And Lord, as we partake of the elements, we are reminded of your love for us. And we ask that you help us and guide us to share your love with others. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. That the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
Let us stand as we sing page 406, Wonderful Words of Life, all three verses. and multiply them. We pray that you keep on blessing this church so that we may continue to bless those around us. We ask these in Jesus' name. Amen.
seated. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. It will be in chapter 11. It will be page 717 in the Pew Bible. 717 in the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 11. And we'll begin at verse number 12. And work our way through verse number 25. Mark chapter 11. And we'll begin at verse 12. And we are now the day after Palm Sunday in scripture time. Obviously not our time. But this is the Monday after Palm Sunday. And it's Mark chapter 11 beginning at verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, but because it was not, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, "Is, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out from the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Well, have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. And therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. Let's pray. Our father, we come today thankful for the word uh, that we have read here this morning. This incredible, amazing event. In the day right after Palm Sunday, the Lord back at the temple. And I know, Lord, that there are some things in here that are relevant for our lives today. So bring them to life, and may we be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Neil Martin was... Let me... Am I going to need to use the pulpit again, Michael? I mean, Robbie, thank you. All right, we'll do that. Still having problems with our microphone. Well, Neil Martin was a... He was a member of the British Parliament for many years. And one Sunday morning, he was attending the Anglican Church. And when he walked in, it was about time for the service to begin. And most people were pretty much seated and ready. But when Neil walked in, the bishop saw him. And when the bishop saw him, wanting to get his attention, he says, Neil! And immediately, everyone in the congregation knelt. 
Let's talk about worship this morning. Now, I think the best way to discover the the value of worship and the importance of worship is to just get involved. It is to experience it yourself and, and, and be participating in it. However, when we worship for any length of time, and as many of us have done over our years, we have a tendency to fall into a routine. You know, where, where Sunday, where church is, or worship is, is just a part of our Sunday routine. And it's not, it loses a lot of its significance and meaning. And, and hopefully, when that happens, we begin to ask some of the deeper questions to ourselves. Like, what is the meaning of it? What is the point of worship? Why do I get up on Sunday morning and, and I wrestle with the kids and trying to find their church shoes and, and try to get them dressed and, and make breakfast and, and get to church on time? What is the point of it? Now, I grew up in church. I'm speaking from my own perspective. Growing up in church. It can be pretty boring, you know. Now, when I was growing up, we did not have children's church. We sat in church with our parents. And I sat between my mom and dad and my two sisters. And we were always within arm, arm's reach of a good pinch, if you know what I mean. And we, there were no, pad, no padding on the pews. No air conditioning. Um, and every Sunday morning in the winter, we'd walk to church, and, you know, two miles in the snow, you know, that kind of thing. But <laughs> church, it, it could get pretty boring. Almost an endurance test sometimes. But there's nothing boring about a worship experience with God. There's nothing boring about experiencing the loving presence of God when you're alone. There's nothing boring about the comforting presence of God when, when you're going through a real grieving time in your life. There's, nothing, uh, there's no greater experience than, than the encouraging presence of the Lord when you're going through a real downtime in your life. Worship is an essential part of who we are. Now, today we're going to continue our study in the life of Christ. We're going through the Gospel of Mark. And I must tell you that in today's passage, this, this passage records one of the most unusual moments in Jesus' life. We're going to see a side of Jesus you just don't see anywhere else in the Bible. And uh, Jesus and his disciples, they're staying in Bethany. And it's Monday morning and they're making their way into Jerusalem. And we're going to look at this passage. It begins, it begins with Jesus cursing a fig tree. And then it transitions to the cleansing of the temple. And then it comes back to the cursing of the fig tree. Now, theologians have a real technical term for this kind of a passage. It's called a sandwich. And we think, we think of the, the cursing of the fig tree as the bread... And the cleansing or the clearing of the temple mount as the meat. And these two events are woven together into one cloth because they are teaching us one critical important truth, which we're going to look at today. But I want to focus in on two things we're going to look at. Two things. We're going to look at Jesus' contempt for what we would call 
superficial religion. And then we're going to look at his his love of authentic, heartfelt worship. Now, our passage begins with Jesus and his disciples. They're making their way into Jerusalem. And Jesus, he's a fig tree. He walks over and approaches the tree, thinking there would be some figs on there. Because Now, Mark tells us it is not the season for figs. True. But the figs should be growing. And there should be some figs on the tree. But there were none. Nothing. The tree had no figs on it at all. And this is the problem that Jesus has with the tree. It is not functioning as it should be functioning. And so Jesus, at this point, does something that is, um, well, we might say, unusual. He curses the tree. And he says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, I, I think this qualifies as one of the most unusual moments in Jesus' life. Now, let's skip over the cleansing of the temple and go to the next day, Tuesday morning. The disciples are, again, with Jesus, walking back into Jerusalem. And they notice the tree. The tree is dead. Noticeably dead. The leaves are brown. It's withered. It's obvious. Now, I'm not a botanist. I don't know much about these kind of things. But my experience has been that when I've trimmed a tree, and I've cut one or two down... That the leaves stay green, sometimes for a week or more, before they begin to really wither and turn brown. But this tree was noticeably dead. It was dead from the roots up. And so something has obviously happened to the tree when Jesus spoke those words. Now, this event, this moment in Jesus' life, has been, uh, has sparked a lot of debate. And it, it has even shaped the, uh, the views of some people about Jesus. For example, Bertrand Russell. Now, he's a Canadian. Most of us may not be familiar with Bertrand Russell. But he was a, a, an outspoken atheist and critic of Christianity. He, he even published a series of papers which were eventually compiled into a book. And the name of that book is, Why I Am Not a Christian. And he lists several reasons why, numerous reasons why. And this event in Jesus' life is is one of the reasons why he says, I could never become a Christian. And here's what he writes. He says, this is a very curious, curious story. Because it was not the right time of the year for figs. And so you really could not blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, that Christ stands as high as some other people in history. I think I would put Buddha and Socrates above him in these respects. You see, the problem, though, with Bertrand Russell, when he looked at this moment, he was looking at it from a purely secular point of view. No spiritual discernment as to what Jesus is doing and why he is doing it. And that's what we're going to look at here. But before we do that, the fig tree isn't the only thing that is a recipient of the Lord's holy and righteous anger. As Jesus then goes on to the Temple Mount, you know what he sees? He sees thousands and thousands of people there on the Temple Mount. They are milling around and they're 
I mean, from all, from a visual perspective, it appears to be alive, it appears to be vibrant, it appears to be healthy, everything appears to be good. Thousands of people are milling around on the Temple Mount. But on closer look, you know what Jesus sees? He sees a temple, he sees a place of worship that is no longer functioning as a place of worship. It is hollow. It is empty. There is no fruit. There is no spiritual fruit. It is not functioning as God intended. In fact, it was more of a, it looked more like a, a first Monday in Canton than it did a place of worship. There were hundreds of tents set up where, where, uh, where uh, merchants were, were selling sheep, they were selling goods and other kinds of things. People were, were, uh, were shopping and going from booth to booth looking for the best deal and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a sale. And there were money changers making sure there was, the money was flowing as easily as possible. The Temple Mount was not functioning like it should. There's no prayerful reflection. No prayerful reflection on, on the grace of God. No prayerful reflection on the, the forgiveness of God. And, and when they would sacrifice their animals, there was no reflection on, on the purpose of the sacrifices. None of that. You know, I think, had, I think had there been some prayerful reflection on what was going on, I think had there been a truly worshipful and prayerful reflection I think the people, when they, when they sacrificed their animals, they would have said something like, this should be me. Or when they were there on the Temple Mount, they would, be, they would understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God. They would have recognized him as that. But there was none of that. It looked more like a first Monday in Canton than a place of worship. And so Jesus goes to work. And in verse number 15, verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area. And he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry any more merchandise. You're done. Out of here. Through the temple courts. I mean, can you not see that in your mind's eye? I mean... Jesus overturning the tables and, and coins rolling across the floor and he upsets the, the cages and birds are flying out and men are grabbing their receipts, the women are grabbing their purses, you know, and they're all scurrying for the nearest exit. And think, think about this. Jesus is just one man. One man. And he is able to clear the entire Temple Mount of thousands and thousands of people. The Temple Mount, by the way, I mean, area-wise, is 36 acres. It's bigger, bigger than, than Canton. And there are thousands and thousands of people there, and one man is able to drive them all out. You say, well, he had a whip. You know, he had, he had this whip. He's out there cracking the whip and getting them out of there. Yeah, John tells us, yes, he had a whip. He made it. But it wasn't made out of leather. It was made out of straw it resembled more of a broom okay it was a wimpy whip okay it it couldn't hurt a fly well it could but it really was a very insignificant it wasn't the whip that was driving people out it was the power of his presence 
that drove them off the Temple Mount. It was the authority in his voice that was driving the people out. The people knew instinctively that this was the presence of the Lord. And by the way, he had every right to do it. In fact, you know, Jesus says, this is my house, right? My house will be a house of prayer. This is my house. He had the authority to do that. Now, as I'm looking this over and I'm thinking to myself, well, what is, you know, what is the relevance for us? And then it dawned on me, you know what? As I looked at it more closely, I noticed that after Jesus drives them off the Temple Mount, verse 17, it says that that's when he began to teach them. He taught them, is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers? He drives them off the Temple Mount, and then he explains to them and teaches them why he did it. Now, here's the practical side, at least the way I'm looking at it. From my own perspective, and this has been true in my life. Sometimes the Lord upsets our tables, overturns things in our life, and we don't even know why. Now, later on, he will explain why sometimes. But I have found that many times the Lord has upset things in my life, and I don't even understand why. I think Job, I think, is a good example of that. Remember, Job, the Lord really, really upset Job's Job's life, overturned a lot of things in his life. And And Job, through the book, he's complaining. He's complaining, Lord, why are you doing this? Explain to me. He... Job says, Lord, if you would just explain to me why you're overturning my life the way it is, it's all upside down. If you would just explain to me why you're doing this, I'm okay with it. I could deal with it. But when you read through the book of Job, God never tells him why. Never does. In fact, you know what God does? God says, Job, I'm the creator. Where were you when I put the stars in space? Where were you when I created the the elephant and the alligator and all the animals? Where were you, Job? Job, I'm the creator. And that's that. And you know, in the end, Job falls to his knees. And he acknowledges, God, you are God, and I'm not. You know, sometimes we don't know why God upsets our lives. We don't understand it. Down the road, he may explain why. But we can trust him. We can trust him in those moments. Because he is a God who loves us. You know, everything that comes through our our lives, everything, remember, comes through the hands of the Lord. And those hands have nail prints. And that tells us the amount of love that he has for us. And that alone is, I think, the reason that we we can worship him. Now let's look at the second part of this passage. Here I'm going to see where Jesus calls us to authentic worship. Now I want to make sure that we're all kind of on the same page when we talk about worship. Worship means that we are acknowledging the worth of someone or even something. You know, some people worship things. Things are at the center of their life. But in the Christian perspective, from a Christian Christian sense... To worship the Lord is to acknowledge His greatness, His omnipotence, His omniscience, His, is to acknowledge His, His great honor, 
uh, it is to celebrate his worth. Worship is to, is to sing joyous praises to the God who has created us and redeemed us. You know, over the years I've been to a number of wonderful concerts at Bass Hall in Fort Worth and Meyerson and other places, and I've heard some great orchestras. And during those, during those experiences, you know, how would you say, you're electrified, you're energized, there's just excitement in the air as you listen to it. And I, I can remember on one occasion, the, uh, it was a Christmas um, uh, presentation, uh, musical, and they played the Hallelujah Chorus at the end, and you know, you're just, there's just something going through you that you just feel and you sense. And I think, you know, that is, that is what worship is. Is supposed to be like. Something, when we worship, something is happening deep inside of us. Something profound. Something that truly is life-changing when we gather and we sing and we pray and we worship the Lord together. Something deep and profound begins to happen within every one of us. And, you know, as we lift up our praise to the Lord, what happens is He returns blessings into us. And something begins to happen. And what Jesus does here in this passage is he mentions there are three areas in our lives where the Lord begins to just pour into our lives as we worship him. And those three areas are forgiveness, prayer, and faith. Now we're going to start at the bottom at verse number 26 with prayer or forgiveness and then work up through prayer and faith. So let's take a look at this. Notice in verse number, I'm sorry, verse 25. Verse 25, worship impacts our forgiveness. Verse 25, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. So that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Forgiveness is at the very center of our Christian faith. It is, it is essential for our uh, emotional health. It's essential for our spiritual health. And doctors will tell you it's essential for even our physical health. Worship can make a huge impact in our lives through forgiveness. Let me give you an example. All right. Every Sunday, we come to the Lord's table. And we look at the Lord's table. And as we do so, as we are, uh, you know, we're partaking of the bread, which represents the body of Christ that was nailed to the cross. We drink of the cup, representing the blood that was poured out for our sins. And those remind us that we have the forgiveness of sins because of the work that Christ has done on the cross. And as we partake of communion, God begins to do something within us. And it is called forgiveness. Because as we dwell on the forgiveness we have received, we are then able to pass on that forgiveness to those who hurt and offend us. You know, in some churches, you know, some churches, when they recite the Lord's Prayer, they, they say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? Well, one little girl thought that what they were saying was, forgive us our trash baskets as we forgive those who trash our basket. And I think there's some real truth to that. We need to be forgiving of those who trash our basket. But some people, you know, some people... They really struggle with forgiveness. They're bitter. They're angry. 
They are struggling because somebody hurt their feelings. Somebody offended them. Somebody put something in social media that made them feel bad. And they're angry and they're bitter and they're unforgiving. And some people, by the way, even struggle forgiving themselves. Something of their past. Something they did and they're struggling to forgive themselves of it. The problem, their problem is a worship problem. It is a worship problem. One of two things have happened. If they're struggling with forgiveness, they have either stopped worshiping altogether because there's so many other things you can do on Sunday morning. They've either stopped worshiping altogether or they're worshiping, but it has become nothing more than a Sunday routine. And they've lost the meaning of it. They've lost the significance of it. Because genuine worship, that moment when we come to the Lord's table and we begin to reflect on the forgiveness that we have in Christ, how can that not impact the way we live our own personal lives? So worship, worship definitely has a tremendous impact on our forgiveness. It also has an impact uh, on our prayers. Notice in verse number 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer... Believe that you have received it, and it will be given to you. And earlier, Jesus said, my house, my house will be called a house of prayer. Now, I believe our church should be a house of prayer. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but stop and think about this for a minute. How often do we pray in our worship service? Now, I've been to some worship services. I've, Debbie and I were gone the last couple of weeks, and we've been in other churches besides my mom's church but we pray think about we have an invocation prayer at the beginning we have a pastoral prayer we have a communion prayer we have a uh, offertory prayer we have a sermon prayer before we preach i preach and then there's the prayer that everybody says amen And that's the closing prayer, the one everybody looks forward to. But think about all the, because we want to be a house of prayer. We want to encourage that, that prayerfulness in our own lives. And yet I know some people struggle with prayer. Some people say, you know what, I don't pray anymore. Why pray? It didn't work. I prayed. I prayed for my wife's depression. She's still depressed. I prayed for my husband's salvation. He's still lost. I've been praying for a job. I don't have a job. I don't don't pray anymore. I give up on it. I'll tell you what's happened. One of two things. They've either stopped worshiping altogether. Or if they are worshiping, it has become nothing more than a Sunday routine. Because in worship, genuine worship, that's where we are encouraged to be persistent in our prayers. It's where we increase our faith in when we pray. It's when we remember all the promises that God has made to us when we pray. It's when we claim those promises. It's when we, it's, it's when we remember that with God all things are possible. Genuine worship will always facilitate prayer. It will energize prayer. And it will empower prayer. Worship has a powerful impact on our prayer. And then third, worship has an an amazing impact on our faith. Our faith. Notice in verse 22, Jesus says, Have 
faith in God. Trust him. He says, have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and, and, and does not doubt in his heart, but believe that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. So what is your mountain? What is your mountain? That You know, all of us go through life and we come to mountains from time to time. We come across them and it could be, um, it could be anxiety, maybe because of your health. It it might be fear because of finances. It might be loneliness. Your mountain might be loneliness. Your mountain, your mountain could be, could be a broken relationship. There are so many things that come into our lives that are the mountains in our lives. And how well are we doing at moving those mountains? You know, some people, some people don't do so well. And one of two reasons why they're stuck. And they're not moving forward in their lives. They're not able to move those mountains. One of two things. They've either stopped worshiping altogether. Because, hey, there's so many other things to do. Or they are worshiping, but their worship is nothing more than a Sunday routine. Because genuine worship is a mountain-moving experience. It is when we are encouraged, when we're discouraged... It is strengthening when we're weak. It is enriching when we're in poverty. Genuine worship is a mountain-moving experience. So, let me say, I cannot overstate the value and the importance of worship. It impacts our ability to uh, forgive completely, pray powerfully, and trust implicitly. So, we ask the question, What is the point of it? Why do we get up early? Wrestle with the kids? Try to find their Sunday clothes? Why do we go through it all? To come to church? Here it is. We worship to voice our praise to the Lord. And in return, we are blessed by the Lord. We worship because we we want to voice our praise to the Lord. And in return, we are blessed. Richly blessed by the Lord. Now one more thing I want to point out. In verse number 22, Jesus says, This mountain, say to this mountain, be gone, be cast into the sea. What mountain is he talking? In this passage, specifically, talking to the people there, he's talking about the temple mount. That's where he's standing. He's saying, this mountain, say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. Wow. You see, the temple, that mountain is where the temple stood. It's where the priests did their work. It's where the animals were all sacrificed. And Jesus is saying, cast it into the sea. Be gone with it. You know why? Because the gospel was no longer heard there. It had become a first Monday in Canton. It was no longer a place of prayer. It was no longer a place where you could hear the gospel. And Jesus says, cast it into the sea. The gospel's not there. You know, imagine. Imagine going to church, by the way, and never hearing the gospel. I have a good friend, dear friend, known him for a number of years. He grew up in East Dallas. Went to church with his parents every Sunday. He said, you know when I got saved? His name is Jim. He said, I got saved when I went to the University of Texas. And I was a freshman 
And I met a group called Campus Crusade for Christ. He said, that was the first time I ever heard the gospel. He grew up in church. If I gave you the name, you'd probably recognize it. <laughs> Can you imagine? They're going to the Temple Mount. They're never hearing the gospel. By the way, let me ask you this. Let's say, all right, by the way, the Romans, you know, the Romans will do this. They'll, they'll remove the Temple Mount. They'll erase it. It'll be gone. The, the temple, the priest, the sacrifice, all of it will be gone. So, where do they worship? What was Jesus... What's going to be that place of worship without the temple? Jesus made a very interesting comment one time. He said, and he's on the temple mount. He says this. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. What was he talking about? His body, himself. He was talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection. Jesus is the new temple. He's the new priest. He's the new sacrifice. What Jesus is saying is, if you're trusting in your religion, throw it into the sea and trust me. If you're trusting in your moral and ethical strength to be a good person, throw it into the sea. Trust me. Jesus says, if you're trusting in your family, in your Christian heritage to get you into heaven, throw it into the sea and trust in me. Because salvation... Is found in Christ. And that's his point. Don't trust in anything but in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for, the, for this incredible moment in Jesus' life. Where he brings to right to the forefront that all that religion has to offer is nothing. It is through Christ that we have salvation. So, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who's never come to that moment of faith in Christ, I pray that today they will open their heart and receive him as their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand as we sing page 355, There is a Wideness in God's Mercy. All three stanzas, please. Oh, 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 oh,
kind of liked having an old-fashioned service. That wasn't too bad at all, was it? All right. Don't forget the nominating committee will be meeting in the DFC, the large DFC room, right after the service this morning. So if you're on that committee, please join us today. Let's have a closing prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again. Oh, you're a God of grace and a God of mercy in providing a salvation that is through grace, not of works, but of grace. And Father, we're so blessed that when we gather here to worship, we leave more blessed than we came. Thank you, Father. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed read.